Welcome to the Defense and Airspace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Later in the program, cyber lessons from the discovery that Chinese alloys made it into a magnet on the F-35 Lightning II fighter. But first, joining us is Mark Montgomery, a retired United States Navy Rear Admiral, who is now the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Uh, he is also a Senior Advisor on the Bipartisan Cyber Solarium 2.0 Commission, uh, which is the successor of the uh, highly successful Cyberspace Solarium uh, Commission, uh, chaired by Senator Angus King, as well as Representative Mike Gallagher. Uh, he, along with FDD's Juwan Ma, are the co-authors of the 2022 report on implementation of the Solarium Commission's uh, recommendations. Uh, and yes, uh, for anybody wondering in the audience, uh, Mark is not an idle bystander in this, but is regarded as uh, a, a fair-minded player in it. Mark, it's always great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me, Vago. Absolute pleasure. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security, as I mentioned, sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications, sponsors our coverage of command and control, and our coverage of the Air Force Association's annual airspace cyber conference and trade show uh, was sponsored by and is being sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Mark, always a uh, pleasure having you on. A great uh, appraisal of the uh, progress made, which which really is uh, quite extraordinary, even though there's an enormous amount of work to be done. Uh, some, in our, uh, some in our audience will, will ask themselves, why do we spend so much time talking about this? And the answer is because it's really, really, really important, uh, not just uh, for national security, but indeed uh, for the nation. Um, what are your and Juwan's key findings? Well, Vago, thanks for having me, and it's, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. This is our, our second report. You know, we, we did the original report in March 2020. We did a one-year assessment last summer and now a second-year assessment this summer. What we're really trying to do is understand where are we making headways and where are we having challenges. So good news here is that of the 82 recommendations from the original report, about 60% are fully implemented or nearing implementation and more than 25% are on track to implementation. So I'd say that's 85% are kind of yellow light or green light. And that's and that's a good thing. Uh, and I would also point out here that, you know, you sometimes say, well, is that all low hanging fruit? We actually have a breakdown where we talk about what's the high hanging, what were the hard things, the high hanging fruit? And of those 10 really big things, we've got six of them done. So again, about 60% are in the green light area. This does obviously point out that there's challenges. 15% of our recommendations have either have significant obstructions or no progress at all. And, uh, and obviously that's an area for work. And then, and then additionally, we, we note that, uh, hey, there's, there's some need for uh, oversight of the ones that we're tracking. Like it's one thing to like pass uh, an, an authorization, but do you have the, the uh, right level of appropriation against it? It's another, you know, you pass an, a, a legislative provision, is the executive branch carrying it out right? So right. there's, I, we don't want to leave you with the idea that, uh, you know, uh, this is the culmination of the US government's focus, but really it's a prelude to even further changes. Um, so, so talk to us about uh, what uh, meaningful has been implemented already, just to remind the audience uh, what's nearing implementation and, and what's on track. And then separately, we'd like to talk a little bit about the impediments uh, where progress is being limited and there are significant barriers. And even though that's 2.4%, there are some very important things that fall, unfortunately, into that 2.4%, right? 
Yeah. So you're, you're spot on. They, 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 it's good to mention the reminder ourselves of the successes. You know, probably our biggest strength was in reorganizing the government. The government, you know, three years ago uh, was not properly focused on cybersecurity. I think that was a bipartisan conclusion. You know, nothing unique in in the in the cyber solarium pointing that out. But our recommendations have had some good success there. One is the creation of the national cyber director. Uh, you know, a point of focus for cyber defense at the White House. Um, a second is the and Chris Inglis, one of our commissioners, has been has been in that job for about a year. And to give you an idea where they're at, their final manning should be about 105 uh, to 110 people maximum. Um, they're at about uh, 55 to 60. I think they'll reach that 105 by the beginning of next year. So when I'm as we you know do oversight of how they're doing, I think we'll be doing that in earnest starting in January, February. Uh, I think one of his big chores will be producing the national cyber strategy and by all rumors uh that should be out within the month um another area with big improvements was strengthening CISA, the cybersecurity infrastructure security agency at dhs you know we had i think 10 provisions uh, eight of which have passed into law we've taken their budget from 1.8 billion to 2 billion to 2.53 billion and i think in fy23 we're going to settle in around 2.95 billion. So, you know, that's a 60 plus percent increase over, um, you know, three, three and a half years. That's significant. That's about as fast as a government agency would be allowed to grow without like burning dollars in a 55 gallon barrel. Right. So I'm, I'm very comfortable with that. So there's a series of areas like that where we've made progress that, that I, I think is good. And if I can mention one other thing, um, Representative Jim Langevin, one of our uh, strongest leaders here, he he uh, he said, "Look, we got to stop focusing just on the National Defense Authorization Act as the vehicle." So this past year, we used the NDAA, we used the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that had six of our provisions, the Chips and Science Act had eleven of our provisions in it, and we used the Consolidated Appropriations Act. So we're spreading out the tools, the legislative tools and vehicles we're using to get things done. And let's talk about what falls into that two point three or two point four percent, right? Uh, of uh, impediment, uh, and and it's not it's it's not just impediment, right? I mean, the, there's the 2.4, and then and, and progress limited. Let's start with progress limited, then go to significant barriers. Sure. So progress limited, you know, and this is what hurts. Some of our high hanging fruit is in there. Things we really think we need done. These are the things about you know how do we get uh, how do we build that public private collaboration properly? So things in there are, are things like an office or bureau of cyber statistics. You know, I'm, I'm very concerned that very that soon we're going to have a, a great deal of um, of uh, information flowing in through the incident reporting bill, but we're not going to have the vehicle necessary to analyze that. And I'll give you one other one from that, Ben. The, the National Cybersecurity Assistance Fund, this is about your resilience. This is about being tackling problems left of boom, you know, identifying single point failures in a critical infrastructure where let's say you need another 14,000 400 volt transformer for the Northeast power grid, a, a spare. Well, no, none of the five or six companies that power that grid individually think they're responsible for buying the, the you know, a 50 to $100 million spare. But, you know, you have to step back and the Department of Energy has to say, hey, we need to be accountable for it. After 9-11, we lost a major transformer down in lower Manhattan. We were darn lucky that a transformer was about to be installed in Georgia, but had not started. We're able to train it up, um, you know, get it up by train to New York and get it installed in, in uh, 
weeks and months, not months to years uh, for construction, but we didn't intrinsically have a spare. So I, I just tell you, you know, that's an example of one single point failure. You know, there's challenges with the position navigation and timing that so many trucks and trains and planes and port facilities rely on. You know, do we have sufficient redundancy there? I can identify lots of these. We're not making progress on that uh, to the degree we need to. And, and we have both legislation and appropriations that have stumbled uh, over the last two years. Uh, and what remain uh, in your view in the significant barrier category? So uh, for you know, what I say there, you know, one of them is reorganizing the Congress, right? So when we deal with, with these reports, you know, Senator King will tell you, I think the number is somewhere between, depending how you count it, between 55 and 65 committees or subcommittees think they're responsible for cyber, you know, uh, 20 of them are in appropriations, but still, you know, 35 to 45 in the authorization area. That's a lot of committees and subcommittees that have to, you know, kind of have a, a focus on cybersecurity, be doing oversight in cybersecurity. We would have argued, let's try to get as much of those authorities, uh, uh, you know, focused in one committee, kind of like we have a Senate Select Committee on Intelligence or a House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, but that, that hasn't happened. And I don't know if it will, you know, the way we got Sissy and Hipsy was the church commission and the inappropriate behavior, the significantly inappropriate behavior of CIA in the late 1950s, 1960s, as, you know, uh, as revealed by um, Director Colby um, to the church uh, commission. That significant event did this. So it's probably going to take a significant event to get Congress to reorganize itself for oversight of cyber. I, I, I want to ask, and you mentioned uh, um, Chairman Langevin uh, a moment ago. Unfortunately, he decided to uh, surprise everybody by deciding to retire. Uh, but he's certainly, um, you know, left his mark uh, and has uh, always been a man uh, in a rush to try to get as much done all the time. Uh, anybody who knows him, you work with him very, very closely. And he always has an, a sense of urgency. And indeed, that sense of urgency is highlighted or well, heightened. Um, what do some of the changes in the composition of these committees, uh, uh, John Katko uh, stepping down uh, as well, what does all of this mean in terms of what the next Congress, I mean, we don't know how everything's going to turn out, but people really matter and having the right people and the right personalities, this commission would not have been as successful without uh, somebody like Angus King and somebody like Mike Gallagher doing it, um, you know, and having a Jim Langevin associated with it and, and other members as well. What does what right. the change in composition here potentially great, mean? Geez, that's a great question, Vago. And, and you're spot on. First of all, I just want to acknowledge what you said, which is that Representative Jim Langevin is, is um, uh, easily the most uh, experienced, skilled, and successful cyber politician we have, you know, cyber legislator we have. Um, you know, his, his uh, uh, track record of accomplishment, legislative accomplishments is unparalleled. Um, we're going to miss, there is no replacing him. The question is what's coming forward to, you know, fill as much of the gap as they can. First, I would note, you're right, Mike Gallagher, one of our chairmen, um, he remains on the House Armed Services Committee. You know, it'd be my hope that, that, uh, that he becomes chairman or ranking, depending on who controls the House of the uh, Cyber uh, uh, Committee going forward, because there'll be your normal bump and movement in there. Um, and, um, and then uh, I, you mentioned the House uh, Homeland Security, where we're losing uh, John Katko. I don't know if Yvette Clark will stay in, in her position on the Cyber Subcommittee. I do hope we keep uh, Congressman Gabrino from New York, who's the ranking member on the Cyber Committee and has done some, some good work over the last 
uh, year and a half. But there's some definitely some gaps to fill there on both sides uh, on both sides of the aisle in the House in this role. There, there are um, there are other uh, uh, on the Democratic side, Congressman Torres or Congressman Moulton, and so interested in these issues. So there are there are people who step up. There's just no one's going to fill Jim Langevin's shoes. The question is collectively, can they come close? I do want to contrast this with the Senate, where Joe Manchin and Mike Rounds have been running the Cyber Subcommittee on, on uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee for, uh, I think, six or eight years between them. And uh, and the two of them get along great. They're both very receptive to the Cyberspace Learning Commission. Senator King has excellent relationships with both Senator Rounds and Senator Manchin and has really developed that. So I'm comfortable there. Uh, and and in the the his gag Homeland Security Government Affairs Committee of the Senate, I think the um, I, the Senator Peters is going to stay on the Democratic side, so that's a great anchor. Uh, I do think you know we all know Senator Portman's retiring. I have no idea who's taking over there, but there's a gap there that we'll have to watch. And there, it's at the it's at the committee level, not the subcommittee level that cyber's driven. So we'll have to watch that uh, that closely. So Senate's probably a bit more stable, but you're absolutely right. We're going to miss Jim Langevin. He's a workhorse. And indeed he is, but he's still got some time to get some stuff done. Um, you put that in the significant impediment category. And, uh, you know, Senator King is right. Uh, and other members would tell you the same thing. And yet, you know, it's it's Congress. You've worked up there for a long time. You work for John McCain. Um, you know, I mean, Mark, I mean, ultimately, is that something is Congress ever going to do that? I mean, it's important to do it. But jurisdictionally. Is anybody really going to yield it, uh, yield authority to a central committee that arguably will put us in a much, much better place? Not until you have a church commission like a vet. So, right. Me, okay. We really have to have that cyber, not, you know, 9 11, even, you know, that's kind of apocryphal event. And at the end, the burning ember of responsibility needs to at least to be partially pointed at Congress. You know, it isn't just that you have to have a significant event, you have to say the lack of oversight or the inability to focus at the congressional level was uh, accountable, you know, partially to blame, then I think you'd get changed. So that's something none of us want and, and we may never see. So, you, you know, your implication that this isn't going to happen anytime soon is correct. Um, and uh, very quickly, you mentioned uh, two acronyms that came out of the Church Commission. And I know that uh, an older generation understands what they are, but a younger generation might not even know what the Church Commission was, has no idea what the two pieces uh, of important legislation were. Just tell everybody what those two were. So, uh, you know, uh, the Church Commission, uh, one of the results of it, there were a lot of results internal to the CIA management, uh, but one of the results were Congress was reorganized with the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, the SISI, and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the, the HIPSI. Uh, very good. Uh, a little bit of origin story there. Uh, and uh, just really quickly, right, um, you've joined us very regularly to talk about sort of the what's next. What's the latest and what's next when um, members uh, come back? Because we have very short number of legislative days, actually, right? And and this could be one of the more, one of the busier Decembers on record, right? I mean, we're looking at CRs expiring. We've got to pass an NDAA. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of moving wheels here. Um, and oh, by the way, we're not very far away from a debt ceiling increase, right? So that's likely to shadow whatever it is. Uh, that we do in uh, in December anyway. So I do think we'll have a busy fall. So first, I want to give credit. The Biden administration, since we public went to print, 
you know, affected two of our recommendations positively. They, uh, we've now confirmed the first uh, ambassador to lead the cyber, uh, the Bureau of Cyber and Digital Diplomacy at the State Department, uh, Nate Fick. That's a big deal. And the second is, and what looked like a very small thing with very big implications, um, the uh, the Department of Commerce did a business rule uh, change that says, look, U.S. companies can go to standard setting organization meetings where companies like Huawei are present. We were actually self-limiting our, ourselves out of these meetings when listed Chinese companies were there. Great decision by Secretary Romano. And I'll give you a third one, the CFIUS Executive Order, uh, the um, Committee on, uh, on uh, Financial Investment in the United States, expanding its remit to look at more attempts by the Chinese to manipulate our system, steal, steal our intellectual property. Um, that was expanded. So uh, but the Biden administration is cranking along pretty rapidly, faster than we can you know, get to print and get a, a document out. Go, looking forward, the National Defense Authorization Act and the Consolidated Appropriations are both places where you'll see uh, cyber changes writ large. I expect another 40 to 50 provisions, maybe 60 total in cyber uh, from the NDAA, a, a percentage of which will will have some of their origin story with, with our things and affect our recommendations. I do expect the Cyber Diplomacy Act could become law, which would institutionalize that State Department Bureau. And I do suspect that Representative Jim Langevin's kind of final gift to the government, a, a joint collaborative environment where we set up the, uh, the infrastructure, the ligature for the private sector and the government sharing information at the speed of data, doing shared analytical work, you know, a, a real public-private collaboration. I think that that could be in there as well. So a lot of good stuff, Vago, between both authorities and appropriations over this uh, this uh, fall and into the lame duck session. Uh, I'm not just saying this because I consider you a friend, but I think that you have been one of the instrumental figures in this, in bringing people together, working in a bipartisan fashion, um, and, and actually being very, very focused on, on good outcomes, Mark. So I believe you deserve uh, uh, praise because a lot of these ideas uh, were ideas that that you helped originate, brought people together, uh, and and did the cajoling and a lot of the very heavy back uh, behind the scenes lifting. So uh, bravo Zulu to you for uh, managing to do that. Thank you very much. As as an American who depends on the cyber universe, I, I thank you. Thank you, Vago. It was a real pleasure to be here again. And while at the AFA's annual Airspace Cyber Conference, we caught up with our friend Andrea Schaumann of Fortress Information Security, uh, who discussed some of the lessons from the revelation that Chinese alloys had made it into a magnet that is in the F-35 Lightning II fighter built by Lockheed Martin. Uh, as all of you know, we had a conversation yesterday uh, with Greg Ulmer, who heads Lockheed Martin's aeronautics sector. Here's our conversation with Andrea Schaumann. Andrea, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, I'm happy to be here. I'm glad we were able to catch up this week. Uh, indeed, it's an absolute uh, pleasure uh, seeing you here uh, at AFA. Um, one of the big stories um, is um, obviously the F-35 program found uh, Chinese minerals uh, in the magnets uh, that are uh, in uh, uh, one of the systems on the F-35, and obviously an investigation is ongoing. We've heard that from senior leaders. Um, we had Betsy Soren-Jones, uh, your chief operating right, officer, right. Uh, on last week, and, and so many from the Fortress team who've joined us to talk about uh, both um, software bills of materials uh, and origin, as well as on the hardware side of things. So what does it tell us if one of the most scrutinized and largest programs in history, right, it's, it's only after the 800th aircraft and diligent work by folks at the Defense Contract Management Agency that unveils 
oh my God, we're you know drawing you know components. You know, it's it said that none of these were uh, operational; that are not reporting back to China. But what does it tell us about bills of origin and 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 materials that we need to know, especially in a cyber context? Well, uh, that's pretty uh, pretty in depth question there. So what it does is it it underscores the complexity of the supply chain itself. Um, you know, we're talking about delivery of new aircraft. They're halfway through the contracted delivery, but it's a 20 year old program. So it's a combination of new acquisitions and legacy systems, and they all need to be evaluated with the same level of scrutiny. Um, they discovered that it's an alloy that's a component of the magnet, and so you know there's some uh, dil due diligence there that's necessary to make sure that they know exactly what purpose that magnet serves, that it's not interfering with the operation. Or, or safe operation of the aircraft and what data it's transmitting. And so hardware bills of materials and software bills of materials would do that, but that's also um, a key indicator of why continuous monitoring matters. So it could have been completely safe and compliant uh, a few months ago or when this contract was started, and then now because of either a shifting regulatory environment or the dynamic shift within the supply chain and downstream suppliers um, for this alloy, that it can change. And so something that was safe and, and completely compliant before is no longer an accepted uh, part or component. Uh, and uh, right, I mean, obviously the dynamic environment and relationship uh, between China and the United States has changed in the decades, as you noted, uh, over, 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 over the program. So, but what are the lessons, right, in terms of how we are now, right, I mean, the administration has uh, now uh, embraced this as a policy to have software and hardware bills of origins and materials. So how do we get this right as we move through to balance both the regulatory but also the magnitude of the challenge? Because every single system we have has, you know, I mean, the minute you start thinking about it, it instantly spirals into the hundreds of contractors, right, even if it sure. looks, you know, simple on the surface. It, it shows that the system worked the way that it was supposed to. Uh, they self-reported, they volunteered that the information um, or the vendor was possibly um, not compliant. And so Lockheed actually reported that, which then led to the, the halt in delivery. So that's exactly the way that it's supposed to work. Nobody wants to be known post-incident. So what they did is they discovered a, a fault in their supply chain or a potential risk, and they reported it. Uh, what it also does is it shows how complex the supply chain is and the need for continuous monitoring and full illumination. So Lockheed or any prime is going to be responsible for the behavior or, or the components that are delivered by their subs all the way downstream. So you can see how a, a small component or subcomponent within a piece of a much larger system can potentially bring, bring danger or risk into the larger ecosystem. And, and, but from a visibility standpoint, right, I mean, given your experience with this, how big of a project is this to try to even approach the kind of visibility that we need um, ultimately uh, across the supply chain? We're working on it. There have been a number of supply chain studies and vulnerabilities. The last administration and Eric Tuning was in industrial policy at the time. Um, I know Brett Lambert did a tier by tier study to try to understand like who was supplying what in our ecosystem. How, I mean, is, is this, it's basically a never ending project, right? at the end of the day, or is there a way to achieve at least a better degree of nirvana, and how does continuous monitoring actually help you do that, I guess is, my, is, is sort of where I'm going. Well, it's called continuous monitoring for a reason. So it is going to be a never-ending program or project because there is no stopping point. We don't have the luxury of pressing pause and just you know evaluating the entire environment and then bringing it back online once everything is deemed safe. And even if we did that, it would only represent a snapshot in time. So you need to continue to monitor. You need to continue to understand the shifting supply chains and the way that vendors are interacting, um, who our foreign adversaries are. Anything can shift within the geopolitical environment. So maybe a country that was... 
a friendly before becomes an adversarial nation, you know, because of certain actions. And so it's always important. And what they also have shown in this particular instance is that they had a resiliency, they had supply chain resiliency, and they had a remediation plan. They've already found another supplier for this alloy. So while it did push pause, it's not going to be a detrimental impact. It's going to slow them down a bit, right? But at what cost? And when you're looking at maybe a potential business cost versus a safety risk and putting pilots at risk, they should always choose you know, to slow down a little bit on the contract, make sure that what they're delivering is safe, and that way the warfighter can continue to go out and deliver on the mission. Uh, and, ver and very quickly on the chip front, right? I mean, when it comes to an aircraft, it's a much more complicated uh, uh, situation, whereas when it comes to a hardware, it's not as complicated as, as necessarily building a jet. And yet we've seen, uh, and John Coke Francesco, uh, mm -hmm. who, who used to be with the Fortress team, would talk about this all the time, that actually if you go further down the supply chain, there are things that are actually carrying a prime contractor's label that actually are Chinese chips. How are we doing on that front, on the visibility that we have on the hardware side of things? Because ultimately, it wasn't actually that far down the supply chain that was actually drawing on some of these chips because they're good and they're cheap, it's just they may be compromised. That's exactly right. And it comes down to um, following the regulatory environment and understanding how things are deemed uh, quote unquote safe or acceptable. So uh, I think what you're talking about is the white labeling where it would be processed up to a certain point by a banned entity and then walked across the street to a safe entity for finishing. So at, you know, what percentage of contribution does a banned entity need to have in order for it to no longer be safe or present risk into the environment? And so just every single day as the technology changes, unfortunately as the adversaries get a little bit smarter and continue to negate the regulatory regulatory environment. It's all about that continuous monitoring and keeping an eye on uh, what you're introducing into your ecosystem and then being honest about the risk tolerance level. So understanding not only new acquisitions but legacy assets and the way those are introduced um, or uh, brought online within new technological changes. So uh, talk, plugging in you know, a really old system into a new digital environment or uh, adding an IP address to something that used to not be connected into an ecosystem. That all matters because a lot of those legacy systems were made before cyber risk was even a consideration. So you need to make sure that you're not introducing new risk by adding something as simple as a USB port or a chip or a component that now gives it the ability to transmit data and connect in a way it didn't before. And it's so impossibly simple and in 2022, we're saying the same thing that folks would have told you in like 1992. Right, right, right. Even, or even further back than that and just not thinking about it um, in terms of the risk that it introduces because it maybe offsets some difficulties. You know, think about how we all live at home every day with our smart systems, you know, connected coffee pots and doorbells and irons and things like that that can absolutely introduce cyber risk into a household or be exploited by a bad actor, but it makes our lives so much easier. And so when you think about on the government side when they're trying to reduce costs and get the most use out of their business investments by, by continuing to upgrade and improve legacy systems versus new acquisitions, you're going to be introducing some risk into the environment as well. So there is an upside to all of this, and that is the fact that it continues to put cyber supply chain risk management at the forefront of everybody's minds. Uh, there's been an executive order communicating it as a priority. Um, the uh, executive level of the government is saying that this needs to be scrutinized at every level. of, And so having a program like the F-35 that is really well known and very high, highly prioritized, it keeps it in the forefront and lets everybody know this is happening every day. And if it can happen at, with a program of this magnitude, you can see how it can happen at much smaller levels. And in introduce risk all up and down the supply chain for the government.